I had to really question myself. I was concerned about being a Christian and owning a bar. Right. Um, that was a big hurdle for me to get past. Um, and it, it, it was my brother-in-law again, John, that said, you know, maybe that's where God has you for a purpose and a reason. And um, as a result, uh, it became more of a mission field than an, than, a, than an obstacle to, to my journey of sanctification of faith. Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Drew McLeod, well-known restaurateur who has owned or managed some of the area's most iconic restaurants from midtown to the coast over the last three decades. But Drew's life has had many courses, including times of strained family relationships, drug addiction, and significant financial loss that merely set the stage for his real story of redemption. Instead of pursuing money and prestige, Drew is now driven by gratitude and faithfulness in his relationships with God and the people in his life. We start by discussing how Drew would describe himself today. You know, I think first and foremost at this point in my life, it's important that I express to people my faith in God and uh, who I am as, as a husband and father. It took me a long time to understand what my role would be probably in life. And although I've enjoyed my career as an entrepreneur, um, it's not the most important thing anymore. So when I, when I think about what I want people to know about me, it's that they can trust me, that I'm going to be honest with them. And although some may not like to hear the truth all the time, I'm pretty black and white when it comes to um, my principles. So I think I perceive myself as being a very kind person, um, passionate about what I do and compassionate for people. And so the most important thing outside of my faith is the relationships I have with people, family, friends, coworkers, peers, and so for me, it's, it's just about being true to myself and being true to others. That sounds like a position that you've kind of evolved into over time. Very much so, because I think there was a point in my life when none of that was true. So to get to a place where I'm comfortable with who I am, and uh, able to share that with others. You know, I really look at my career and the legacy that I leave behind is not about what I've accomplished, but what others have gone on to do 
having been influenced or mentored by me and the legacy that I have as a man and as a father will shine through my children. So for me, um, yeah, it was, it's been quite a journey. Mm. <laughs> well, that's good. Cause we're, we're going to talk about that journey <laughs> <laughs> right now. Um, so I know you went to Lincoln high school, right? I did for a year. Okay. I should know this. Did you even, did you grow up in Tallahassee? I did not. Okay. Uh, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Miami. My parents moved to Miami in 1960 from New England. Uh, my father was in the financial sector and, um, you know, Miami was a new market in many ways. And, uh, so they moved in 1960. I was born in 63, uh, pretty typical childhood, Christian parents, um, went to good schools, um, private schools, parochial schools, um, and then my dad had a heart attack at uh, 32, very young age, and uh, it affected his uh, ability to keep his job. <clears throat> it was a financial hit for the family, and we had to move um, away from the neighborhood we were in. And ultimately, uh, he recovered, and uh, uh, but we, we you know, kind of changed uh, from private schools to public schools, so there was a big transition for me. Um, I began public schools in ninth grade and, uh, ultimately, you know, into high school in a public school setting, which, which was fine for me. I was an athlete. <clears throat> I played soccer at a high level and, uh, but, uh, people in America were playing soccer back then. Hey, can you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> Miami may have been the only place that that was happening, but, uh, it was, it was, you know, somewhat popular <laughs> for us. And, uh, so is you, your mom, your dad, you and your brother. And my sister. I have an sister. older sister. Okay. My uh, my oldest sister and then my brother and then myself. So three kids. Uh, my brother was an equestrian and uh, was very much involved with, with that kind of space. And, you know, at the, the summer of 1980, um, my parents uh, wanted to get out of Miami. The influence on me was not great. Um, I had started dabbling in, in, in drugs. Um you know, at, at, at 14, 15, and 16. And, um, you know, they felt like Miami was not the place for me to be. What My, do you think led to you getting into that at that early of an age? Uh, I guess, you know, everybody was smoking pot. And um, I was I was part of that culture, whether it was soccer, uh, you know, the, you know, I don't know. It was just the people I was around, you right. know. Um and the influence, and it just seemed harmless, you know, at the time. And quite honestly, um, we didn't think much of it, you know. Um, now, when you say Miami, were you in in the city of Miami? No, nah, we were in the suburbs. Okay. We were in Kendall, uh, which was still developing at that time. So, um, but yeah, we 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 dabbled in you know marijuana. We, you know, that would lead to other other drugs that were. Well, again, we thought seemingly harmless, but uh, ultimately weren't, and uh, that led to taking some pills and things like that. So I think my and it was and it was and it was it was it's odd, but it was purely recreational. It wasn't like we were, I don't know, we didn't feel like we were druggies, right. but I guess in essence, <laughs> we kind of were. Um, so your mom wanted to get you out of that environment. Yeah, I don't know that she ever knew the degree. You know, that we were involved with that. I think she, I mean, she knew we smoked pot, 
<clears throat> she didn't like it, of course, and she tried to control it. And uh, when when she found things, she would you know ground us and do the things that parents thought that they should do to prevent us from using them. But right. um, ultimately, you know, it, it was their decision that you know Miami was not where they wanted to be. It wasn't necessarily the best place my dad needed to be in terms of his career. And so they decided that they wanted to move to, uh, well, they looked at Ocala and then settled on Tallahassee. And, um, and you know, that, that was tough on me. You know, I did not want to go. I was going into my senior year. Uh, it was a new high school that uh, I would have been the first graduating class of uh, in Miami Sunset. So it opened in 1978. I came in as a sophomore. I would have been the first full graduating class. And... You know, coming up Tallahassee, I didn't know anything about it. And uh, why Tallahassee? I think my dad found a job really okay. that was that was suitable with uh, rose printing. And yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, they 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 did their research and they had other friends up here, uh, a couple of families that they knew in Miami that had settled here, and uh, I think that gave them a level of comfort that they might not have had in going to some place they really didn't know anyone. So that was that was part of it. So you were unhappy. About leaving what you knew and yeah. friends and finishing and, out my you know soccer career um, and, and maybe taking that to the next level. Um, I really thought you know I'd play college ball or something, um, and and you know not not graduating with my friends, uh, leaving a girlfriend, uh, a number of things, and and going into the unknown. And um, I, I was I was pretty angry and. Um, but that summer of 1980, prior to moving up here for the for the you know fall, I uh, there were there were two two deaths or three deaths really that that affected me that summer. And um, one one was a guy that was a friend of mine's best friend. Um, so I didn't know him real well. I'd met him, and. Uh, I don't know if I can use names or not, but sure. uh, Billy Zane was his name, and he committed suicide um, after a bad acid trip. And not knowing him, but knowing he was a good friend of my best friend's, um, that was difficult to understand uh, at 16, and I was 16 at that time. And then uh, um, my girlfriend's best friend um, was raped and murdered, mm. and um, – Never really understood at all, but that was affected her tremendously, obviously. Um, and then there was a the guy that we shared same first name, Drew Drew Settle was his name, and he was a an Olympic platform diver, uh, or potentially becoming one. Right. And there was a place that uh, we used to go, like a swimming hole called the West Forties in Miami, and. Uh, he had climbed a tree and, and jumped into the water and snapped his neck and died. Wow. And uh, this all happened. One summer? A, yeah, within like a couple of months. Wow. And um, I was I was threatening my parents that I was going to stay in Miami, that y'all could go. And it was probably a empty or shallow threat at best. <laughs> I was going, uh, kicking and screaming perhaps. But um, when all that happened, um, I thought, well, you know. Maybe a new beginning, a new new place would be okay. And uh, although I don't think I was ever really on board 100%, um, and, and, and we're talking 40 years ago. So um, right. that, that, that probably made it a little easier for me to agree to go or come to Tallahassee. Wow. That, I can't even imagine. I mean, that is, that is a lot to deal with at one time. 
It, it, it was. Uh, it's a lot to deal with spread out over a, over years, yeah. much less all in a couple of months. And and then coming to to Tallahassee, I had uh, one friend that I knew in Miami, uh, Danny Posey, and um, uh, you know he had adapted already. He'd been up here, so he he went from being. You know, a, a Miami guy to a to a redneck. <laughs> That's what we had to yeah. do. So my roommate in college, my freshman year, was from Miami, and he was not thrilled with Tallahassee. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. He could not wait to get back home. Well, so, I had to I had to cut my hair and get rid of the clogs and uh, get some cowboy boots and change the way I. So you acclimated quickly, right? I did the the first day at Lincoln was a little difficult for me. Um, I was uh, I was a scrapper growing up, so I had a kind of ran my mouth a lot. I was small, not as small as I used to be, but I was small in high school. And um, as a goalkeeper in soccer, I was just very aggressive, and um, so I was known to be a scrapper. And um, apparently, uh, the setup was uh, coming to Tallahassee that. The one guy I knew, Danny, said that I was some kind of uh, uh, fighter, and um, you know, I really wasn't in, in my mind. Um, it's pretty easygoing and and, and right. not difficult to get along with. But that was a reputation that I stepped into day one. And day one, I got in a fight in the hallways, and uh, somebody wanted to see how so, much of yeah, a fighter you were. That's right, a guy named Ricky. And you know how it works out. We ended up becoming friends because anytime you have a fight, that seems to be the case. But um, I was walking the hallways, kind of lost. And, um, you know, he said, you that new kid from Miami. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And I hadn't traded in my clogs yet at that point. But uh, <laughs> so I looked a little different than everybody else in, in, in the school. But, uh, yeah, he, he challenged me and I uh, I hit him pretty hard and he went down. And then uh, Coach Eason came out and asked what was going on. And I said, I really didn't know. And he saw what was there. And I, I went and met Doug Frick, the principal, first day of school. <laughs> A nice way to start. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. But I, I assume things got better from there as far as relationships. They did. Um, you know, Tallahassee was not a hotbed for soccer. <laughs> and uh, there were some. And uh, I acclimated into uh, some guys that uh, had an interest in playing soccer. And that really kind of made it a lot easier to kind of acclimate, as you suggested. Uh, we started playing together. And although Lincoln didn't have a varsity high school uh, soccer team at the time, we we played some friendly games with uh, other schools and uh, had a great time. So there was a club, essentially. Yeah, it was right? a club. Yeah. Well, that's good. At least you had that. No, it, it helped a lot. Um, uh, and I, again, was trying to get to know Tallahassee and, and you know, came came to enjoy it and like it. So you decided after high school, you decided to stay in town and you went to Tallahassee Community College. I did. Right? I did. Um, my brother was at University of Florida. Um I had, uh, I think, been accepted to to both FSU and UF, but uh, did, a lot of friends were going to TCC, and it seemed like a pretty good transition for me. I was working, um, so I, I really hadn't reconciled with my parents to the degree that I probably needed to. Uh, so the really the day after high school graduation, they were uh, going to Atlanta for a Mary Kay event. Uh, conference and I moved out and, um, I was 17. Uh, did they know you were moving out? No, no. They came home and, and, uh, found out and weren't, weren't too pleased. Uh, I had been working at, um, a gas station, um, in Clarn, 
um, uh, Chevron station owned by Mark Hare and uh, moved in with one of the mechanics and uh, right behind Leon High School and uh, had a bicycle. And uh, that was about you it. Were, you were good to go. I, I was good to go. And um, so, you know, I moved out and uh, decided I was going to be on my own. Was the stress with your parents still over the move or was was it deeper um, than that? I think probably in a little bit and, um, you know, that, that yearning for independence yeah. and, and I can do it. Um, and that's a natural it, thing. It was pretty naive. I mean, obviously I didn't really have great transportation. I had a bicycle. Uh, I would bike literally like – And there are uh, more hills here than there oh are in Miami. Oh, my gosh. There, <laughs> yeah, I was biking 25 miles a day. I, I actually rode from Leon High School out to Tallahassee Community College uh, that first semester I was wow. there. I didn't get yeah. a, my first car until January of – you know, uh, 82. Um, and so, yeah, uh, my parents were concerned because it got cold in Tallahassee, which I did never experience in Miami. <laughs> and so riding your bike in 35, 40 degree weather wasn't a whole lot of fun. A little but, different. Yeah. You know, mom would pick me up and, uh, you know, drive me on those super cold days. And uh, um, we, we, we did, we reconciled, but ultimately uh, I was smart and I could pass tests really well. Um, I didn't have to study a whole lot. Uh, it came kind of too easy, but I never applied myself. So B's and C's were fine as far as I was concerned, as long as I could get through. You just didn't care? You didn't, didn't see care. the point in it? No, because I, I, did, I, I guess at that point, I just never knew what direction I was going to go. I was I was lost. I mean, I, I really, really just didn't um, know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to do it. And... So it was just a matter of, you know, getting through, uh, believing that that college was just something that you had to do. Um, but the uh, prior to the summer of 1983, um, I needed 21 hours to, to graduate um, to get to University of Florida because back then, if you got the the AA degree, you could go to any other state university. So right. I think TCC to FSU now. You or, still can. can yeah. yeah. Santa Fe. Still the and, same deal. Yeah. Yep. So I wanted to get over. I wanted to get to Gainesville and be with my brother. And um, I, I got a 3-0. <laughs> you know, I got an A, five Bs, and a C. Right. As I recall. Pretty solid. Pretty solid. And uh, moved to Gainesville. So so you're kind of achieving your next dream or the goal in your I life? I don't think it was even a dream, a dream or a goal. It's like – Going to Gainesville wasn't a no, dream? I, no, I think it was like get out of Tallahassee. I okay. mean, it was like I, I was running. You know, I was still kind of just wanted to get away from, um, you know, whatever that was, those three years in Tallahassee, I just was ready to do something different. And, um, so was Gainesville the difference you were looking for? No, Gainesville probably exacerbated the bad habits that, that I had already begun to uh, – create in, in my in my life. Um, I think my dad once said that I majored in lifestyle and I got straight A's in that. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was one of those things that before I left Tallahassee, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to work at a restaurant, uh, Simon Malone's on the parkway. Yeah. And I'd already worked at Pizza Pro for the Louder Milks and I was already understanding that, you know, hospitality and food service was something that I had an interest in, a gift for, for doing. And uh, <clears throat> when I transferred to Gainesville, um, uh, Steak and Ale was being built, and I had the opportunity to kind of go in there and be a bartender and, you know, help pay for school. I was getting some Pell Grants, and um, 
you know, that just became kind of the new lifestyle was um, bartending and you get into that lifestyle, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So again, school was never a primary focus. Um, you know, I took classes that I, I wanted to in the business school, but um, I wasn't really achieving a whole lot, I don't think. So at this point, was food service a passion for you or was it just a good job and you were good at it and it just worked out? Yeah, I think I think more so that, not really a passion. Um, I, I probably saw some of the potential, but what I really saw was the cash, you, you know, for me, it was a cash cow. I mean, it was quick money. It was short shifts. Um, you know, I could still, um, you know, party after work because I worked at a place that wasn't open until two in the morning kind of thing. Um, so for me, it was just a, a means to an end at that point and not really a passion. Um, but I did, I, I mean, I was good at it. I mean, uh, you know, I could make pizzas or serve drinks or, you know, be a server. I mean, I, I got a lot of early experience um, that has since helped me, but at the time was just really an opportunity to pay the bills and, and, to, and to play. So did you finish your degree at Florida? No. <laughs> so my, my career was, was quickly uh, coming to a halt. Uh, grades were not what they needed to be. Uh, although I'm very good in math, uh, calculus just threw me a, a loop. My brother was like a, tutor in calculus, but I, you know, sometimes taking lessons from a family member doesn't that can work be out tough. so well. Right. But, uh, no, I, I had met a girl and, um, she was from Boca Raton, Florida. And, um, there was an opportunity in 85 to, to move to, um, that area. I actually moved in with her parents and, um, went right into, um, the world of hospitality and, uh, uh, they were gracious enough to let me stay there and, and make some money and get caught up. Even before um, she had come back down, she was finishing school. And um, I did that for a while. And somehow I got onto uh, a, a temporary job with IBM, which their corporate head, headquarters were in uh, Boca Raton at that time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hey, okay, maybe I can do something here. So I, I came in as a very low-level, entry-level uh, employee for uh, IBM as a temporary worker. Never got full-time status, but – uh, it, it, it gave me a new understanding and an intrigue for, for technology that uh, has kind of lasted, you know, and helped me over the years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So you leave Gainesville, you're in Boca, yeah. um, working in the restaurant business. Because I, I look at your resume and it's, you know, over 30 years and we're not going to have time to get into all the stops because, mm. but we're going to hit the highlights. Sure. But there was a, about a six-year gap it looks like between leaving Gainesville <laughs> and opening up your restaurant in Quincy. Right. So that's, you spent that time down in South Florida. Right. So most of it. Um, so from 85 ish, when I moved down there, 86 to 88 or what I kind of call the lost years. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I've never really told this story publicly. So, um, some of the friends that, uh, this girl that I was seeing, um, uh, were involved in a uh, marijuana smuggling uh, group um, out of Boca. And uh, they were recruiting, so to speak, friends that would help them uh, affect this, this process. And they were uh, smuggling 
thousands of pounds of marijuana from Jamaica via sailboat into the Keys and then running it up to Boca and then from Boca distributing it up to Baltimore, New York, and Detroit. Um, and they were looking for couples um, to drive it out, so to speak, so it would look nondescript. Right. You go down to the Keys, you're wearing shorts and sandals and uh, they're loading up trunks of cars and they're you know, you're driving basically for periods of time and uh, it's very, very lucrative. Um, and so for about 18 months, I was involved with that and they were friends and uh, it was – it only happened every, you know, three or four months and you'd get paid tens of thousands of dollars. And I was still working in the restaurant business and I was waiting tables at LNN Seafood Grill in Boca, and, you know, just the average guy but – Nobody really knew what was happening on the underneath, right. except for I was able to buy a condo, I was able to buy a car, and all of a sudden, gee, it's pretty interesting how a guy who's just waiting tables has the ability to do some things that you wouldn't expect. But um, we did that for 16 months, and uh, you know they ended up uh, getting busted, and um, and it was a big deal. It was on the cover of the Tampa Tribune. They got. Um, found out and infiltrated by the DEA and arrested on Apollo Beach in Tampa. And uh, I thought for sure I was going to be in trouble and uh, that it would be traced back to me because we all had cars registered yeah. from Maryland. I mean, there was a whole bunch of things that went with this story. But ultimately, nothing – they never, they didn't care about me. And um, I realized – Or your girlfriend either? No, no, not at all. It was it was the others that were really making the, you know, the big the big dogs. So at that point, things kind of fell apart for her and I, and um, I slipped into um, a world that was very dark, and um, it led to um, drug use on, on a on a much bigger scale. Um, and it wasn't just marijuana; it was cocaine, and cocaine led to smoking crack, and wow. I basically became a crackhead for bit over a year. And, um, you know, that's when my brother reached out to my parents and said, you got to get them home. And, uh, so in 1988, they, they came and got me and, um, I reluctantly left and came home to Tallahassee and it was so cathartic because I was so ready. I, I was so tired. And, uh, as many people who had a, you know, Drug-filled life will tell you I was just tired. I was exhausted and, you know, the love of my parents was stronger than the drug. And um, I quit cold turkey. Um, most people don't. Yeah, I mean crack is something that's, from what I understand, pretty hard to just walk away from. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it was. I mean, uh, you know, my parents have been praying for me and, and uh, you know, I, I was aware of the truth and, and – and my upbringing, but, but, uh, you know, they prayed me through it. And when I came home, I was just like, I'm done. And, uh, um, I, you know, I went to some meetings, not, it didn't, didn't mean that I didn't make an effort, but right. NA and AA meetings. And, um, but I was convinced and, uh, still am to this day that, you know, God cured me of it quickly and for whatever reason, for his purpose and, um, never looked back and, um, you know, that was 1988. So here we are today, wow. 31 years later. And uh, so home to Tallahassee, here I am. Yep. 
So you have to think about, I guess, sometimes your brother rescuing rescuing you and helping get you out of that and your parents coming to get you. I mean, it it could have gone another way. Oh, very much so. Um, My brother was, (laughs) you know, equally familiar with the power of drugs. And, uh, you know, I think he he knew that – I was I was over the edge, and 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 you know if he didn't reach down and, and pull me up, then uh, you know I, I was I was definitely probably on the on on a road to death. I mean, and probably not even I say directly from the drug use, but you know from driving vehicles or you know what I'm saying. I had a couple it was of dangerous. Yeah, all around. I wrecked a couple of cars. It wasn't like I was you know being really responsible in my use so um and i was trying to function too i was trying to make money somehow and waiting tables or something so um yeah absolutely uh i credit him with with uh you know pushing me home and and um my my parents coming down and, and snatching me up you know so a couple of years later 1991 you opened up the gables in Quincy. I did. I did. I, you know, uh, spent the first year uh, in Tallahassee working um, and traveling uh, w- with uh, merchandising and marketing associates, some friends of ours. Uh, and then my mom told me that um, a, a restaurant that they liked, JV's North, uh, Fincher Smith, uh, was opening a new place in Panacea. And um, in 1989, he was opening JV's Port Panacea up and it seemed like a good fit and Fitcher was a great guy and probably would be, you know, a good place for me to go or whatever. And so I spent uh, really uh, two years with Fincher. The the JV's Port Panacea thing didn't work out really well for for him. And I went to JV's North and worked with uh, him and Bobby Harrison for a period of time. And uh, we actually tried to buy JV's North. Bobby had left to open up Old Town Cafe. Um, and my my dad was, you know, trying to figure out a way, hey, if you could buy JV's North, wouldn't that be great? And I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. You know, I'm 27 years old or something <laughs> and go, yeah, that'd be great. But um, couldn't make that work. And we found a place in Quincy called the Gables that had been open um, and they had closed. That should have been a first indication not to go. <laughs> uh, I have a mentor by the name of uh, C.C. Sellers who, who told me who owns Golden Eagle. Um, he said, you know, don't do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, sure enough, um, uh, borrowed some money. And uh, on April 1st, another indicator, April Fool's Day <laughs> of 1991. There was writing yeah, on the wall. There really right? was. Um, I opened up the Gables. And it was, you know, a, an upscale dining uh, in, in a turn-of-the-century home that had been converted into a restaurant. And although um, not a whole lot of financial success, just a great way for me to learn from my dad who came up and taught me the accounting cycle, which I was familiar with, but not to the degree that he could he could school me and um, just learned so much at a young age. And it was I was engaged. Uh, I had met, you know, uh, the, the queen of my dreams. And, um, you know, it was it was just a great opportunity for me. Look, this is mine. Can I do it? Ultimately, I think we had – I learned to measure success differently. Um, it wasn't just financial. And uh, we had some great success in, in how we treated people. Um, now I'm an employer that's not just a manager. Uh, what it meant to sign the front of the check and not just the back of the check. There, there was a lot of growth in me because I was still trying to figure out who is the new Drew McLeod. 
you know, coming off of what I did. So, so did you feel this, this was the period of transformation or transition for you into the scare and, uh, you know, where you were in your life, come back up here, kind of get a, a new start. Is this kind of where you see that, that um, point in your life? I think it, I think it was, I think it was the first step in, in getting there. Um, you know, when, when the Gables didn't work out and, um, Venture and, and and we got married in February of '92, and I told Kim at the time it might be a good time to pull out of not getting married to me because now I, I have closed the restaurant November first. I was open seven months and uh, had no money, uh, didn't have a job, you know that kind of thing. The the people of Quincy lifted me up and had embraced me as a family member. Uh, Herschel Williams, who was the banker, uh, Bud Branson, another banker, Susan. Uh, Henson, who was like a second mom to me, uh, they were just so good to me. And we started catering and doing some things. So they helped me really get out of the financial debt, you know, that was – that accumulated through um, the, the experience of the Gables. But, you know, Kim and I got married, wasn't sure what we were going to do. And Fincher came along, you know, and said, hey, you know, the old Coconut Cowboy is, is closed down and and uh, I'd like to do something there and I'd like you to come take a look at it. And I did, and he said something to the effect of, yeah, yeah, you can run this for me. I said, listen, I'll be your partner, but uh, I'm not really going to work for anybody again. I'm, I'm going to try and, you know, take a different approach to things now that I've had a taste of it. And uh, he said, no, 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 we can be partners. And and that's where the genesis of Paradise Grill and Bar came from. And it's Last, an iconic spot yeah, in Tallahassee. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, it was blue heaven in the 20s. It became Mutt and Jeff's in the 50s and, and closed in 79 or 80 uh, as Mutt and Jeff's became a couple other regular businesses, but, you know, he, he got in control of the property and, um, from, uh, Bill Childers who owned it and used it as his construction office. And ultimately, um, he said, Hey, what can we do with this? It's already been kind of converted into a restaurant. Maybe you have an idea. And, um, Finch and I really respected each other and, and quite honestly, we didn't know what we were going to do. And, uh, it was my brother-in-law, John Hammett, who, uh, said, Oh, well, you know, you love fishing and, you ought to do something seafoody, like maybe call it Paradise Grill and Bar, and that's where the name came from. I give John 100% credit for that, and uh, <laughs> but that gave us a direction. You know, when you have a name, you can kind of go, okay, we're going to do something kind of islandy, and um, you know that that was the beginning of of what became a an iconic 18 year run. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Paradise was Paradise played a very big role in the Tallahassee food scene for a long time. So tell me what that was like. I mean, it was. Great restaurant, great night scene, right. right? Live music. Right. Tell me about all that. You know, I always wanted the emphasis to be on the food, not on the bar. And that's why it was grill and bar, not bar and grill. And, you know, it, it became <laughs> more of a Friday night bar um, that we never really expected. We kept expanding the deck as much as we could to accommodate more people. <laughs> Overlooking the police station. Uh, Overlooking the police station. <laughs> And, um, you know, we did have very good food. Um, I, I consider myself a very good cook. I, I It was more about keeping it simple and, and keeping it to the basics, but uh, had some great people working for us and just came up with a menu that uh, connected with people. Uh, it wasn't too pricey. Um, lunch, you know, we didn't open for lunch the first six months because I knew we had to get that right. And, um, you know, you got 42 minutes to f get people in and out. Right. 
we wanted to kind of perfect our operations and processes before we attempted that. But ultimately, uh, you know, great dinner business, uh, good lunch business. And then the Friday night business was just became iconic and it was big. And, you know, we started out having live bands and, you know, late night DJ. And, and um, what was your favorite band you ever had there? Oh, that's that's not even a fair question to ask, is it? Oh, wow. Um, I know the guys in all the other bands and I love them all, but uh, – Tony O'Donnell and the Groove Merchants were by far, um, not by far, but uh, one of the funnest things. And and they didn't play as much as some of the others. So when they came, it was kind of a special event. Right. Um, You know, Crooked Shoes and CPR and all the guys, uh, uh, King Cotton. uh, I mean, I can name them all, but they were awesome. And they really made it what it was. And the interesting thing that we had was this – market segmentation that was very unique. So we'd have some of the older groups that were over 40, you know, up to 60 coming in and staying till about 10 o'clock. And then there was this huge transition at 11 o'clock that dropped to under 25. And, you know, the DJ kicked in and uh, went, went till two in the morning. So um, it, it was fantastic. It, it, it was a, it was a great run. Um, and it led to, the other opportunities that that Fincher and I pursued from a management company uh, to Finney's on St. George Island, where we were there for 12 years. We we operated Angelo's uh, 97 to 98. Uh, it was kind of an experiment gone bad, perhaps. But uh, uh, we, we we had a management company that operated other businesses, one in, one in Bainbridge. Um, and I was able to work with some other people on opening a produce company and um, – so it 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 really was the hub of of who we right. were. Hey everybody, just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001 because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. What was your life like then in terms of hours worked and family life? That had to be tough. Well, I I can tell you this. It wasn't real healthy for um, a newlywed couple. Um, We got married in 92. We opened up Paradise July 15th of 92. And... um, you know, I thought I was on top of the world. You know, we we, we hit success pretty early, and um, you know, Kim and I were, were were able to build a home, and um, we had no children. She was involved with Mary Kay and her work, and um, but it was we we were you know proverbially passing like two ships in the night. I, I was working late nights. Um, fortunately, we were able to build our home on on family property, so she was closer to her parents and her sister, uh, which was comforting for me to know that she was surrounded by family uh, when I was working late. Uh, but it wasn't a healthy environment for me. Um, and, um, you know, there was never a lapse into drugs or anything like that, but certainly um, uh, not not a healthy environment and, and late nights. And, and it just – It was a scene that was similar to when it was some problem times for you in the past. Yeah, and and, and – uh, you know, Kim and I got distant for a period of time and we were, you know, too early. And fortunately, you know, her her sister, um, Dana, and, and uh, her husband, John, uh, 
saw saw some of those things, and Kim Kim had expressed some of those things to her, and uh, we were just distant. And um, they prayed and prayed and prayed, and you know, an opportunity came for me in, in May of 1995 um, to to go to a Promise Keepers event, and um, I was open to it. I wasn't. Uh, no, I'm never going kind of thing. I was like, okay, sure. I was going with my brother-in-law and uh, who I love and and got along with wonderfully. And that was the change in my life that will forever be marked about who I am now. For those that don't know, you know, Promise Keepers was a big ev- evangelical movement started by Bill McCartney, the former head football coach at Colorado. And um who's doing these big stadium events right. and they're revival, you know, and um, they had fantastic speakers. They really spoke truth. And there I was in the, in the, in the Atlanta Georgia dome uh, in the back of the stadium, furthest from the stage that you could be amongst 60,000 men, uh, right. all giving praise and worship to Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, near the end, obviously there was an altar call and, you know, I couldn't couldn't stay in my seat, and um, you know, it was at that point that I came down and I surrendered my life to to Jesus Christ, and um, it was it was the most remarkable, transformative event in my life. That did you know you were different after that day? Oh, there's no question. I mean, there were so many questions that I had, and of course, being a new Christian, and I knew a lot of it. I had a lot of head knowledge. Uh, I'd, I'd had spiritual experiences before. Uh, in fact, even before I left Tallahassee and went to Gainesville, I thought I'd become a Christian, never got any spiritual food, but was always open. And I kind of always had believed, you know, I believed it in my head that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and um, he was sacrificed so that I might be forgiven, and Rose from the dead. I mean, you know, there's the basic precepts of Christianity. And <laughs> right. I believed it, but not in my heart. Didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, you know, that that day it was obvious that 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 uh I was a new person and I had been reborn and you know, came home and you know, I'm not sure that my wife really recognized me. <laughs> you know, it was different. And I had to really question myself. I was concerned about <clears throat> Being a Christian and owning a bar, right? Um, that was a big hurdle for me to get past. Um, and it, it, it was my brother-in-law again, John, that said, you know, maybe that's where God has you for a purpose and a reason. And um, as a result, um, it became more of a mission field than an than a, than a obstacle to to my journey of sanctification and faith. Um, you know, it gave me an opportunity to witness to others and to protect others from themselves sometimes and um, to stand up and, and be a godly, you know, bar owner, so to speak. Right. So it gave me some opportunities I didn't – wouldn't have seen otherwise. So I know it's easy to come back from those kind of things and be pumped and be full of aspiration and mm-hmm. change. How – how did you feel like it changed you more long term? Was it because you have to get back into the rhythm of sure. life and yeah. all that stuff? How did that go when you when you got back into what you face on a day to day basis? Sure. Well, I think the first thing was we had to connect and get involved with the church, and we did that through Killarney United Methodist, and that was, you know, my parents were there, so it really helped from fully reconciling with them, but them seeing my life come full circle. Um, so becoming a part of the church body was important. Uh, I did get very much involved with Promise Keepers. Um, I became an evangelistic volunteer, um, went to probably 
seven or more of their big conferences, uh, both as a participant uh, um, or as a, a volunteer. Uh, and that was eye-opening for sure. But, you know, I buried myself in the word and, and, and got to understand who I was supposed to be and how I was supposed to do it. But yeah, we, we, we definitely, I, I, I think I just got a new sense of purpose and, um, it, it drove me in the business world. You know, that's when we started, uh, you know, doing Finney's on St. George in 96. So a year later, I'm like, what, what more can we do? You know, where, where can we find opportunities and how are we going to build this company? I, I'll tell you one of the best stories that, that I'll, I'll never forget. And, it, it was it was it was before my conversion, um, but I was very much a back of the house guy. I was a cook by nature, um, but I'd worked in the front of the house, so I understood the mentality of, of what I perceived as greedy servers and bartenders counting their money at the end of the night in front of a guy who's making nine bucks an hour and sweating for ten hours in the kitchen. And it and it bugged me. And, and being the owner, I I made it clear that uh, I was in not pleased with that. And I treated the front of the house staff very sternly hmm. to say the least. I was not the nicest guy in the world. And Fincher took me out to Capital City to play golf one day and we're on the third tee box. And uh, I think even in my backswing, because this is more his style, he said, <laughs> yeah, you know, the servers hate you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, they kind of fear you. And I'm like, good, they should. And uh, I said, they're lazy, they're greedy. And, and quite honestly, you know, I, I don't respect them. He goes, but you need to. Because without them, we can't do what we do. I thought about it for a minute. I said, but I, I just can't stand the way that – he goes, well, then then turn them. Make a difference in their lives and show them to be more compassionate towards the back-of-the-house team and, and get them um, to maybe see it differently and appreciate and respect them. Right. And sometimes it's just not counting your money in front of them or thanking them or whatever. And uh, that, was, that was a big turning point in me professionally – to understand that my role as an owner could not be one-sided. And I also found out that not everybody fits in the same box, right? So I have to treat people differently. You can't treat everybody the same. People receive information differently and you communicate to people differently. So uh, that was a big turning point professionally. And did that, did you see a a change in that in your relationship with the front of the house people? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, to this day, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to lead um, so many people in so many different businesses, but um, I have a great deal of respect for everybody that works for me, and I have a, a mantra of the Big Five, and, and it's it's written all over the offices that I even now possess. And I hire people for character more so than I do for um, skill sets, although that's important. Um, but my Big Five are um, hard work, uh, respect integrity, dependability, and attitude. And I look for that in people and they can expect that from me. And that's what I think helps them feel more like a team member or a family member than they do an employee Hmm. because I treat them with that. And I expect it from them and can't always figure that out in the first 15 minutes of an interview, but you'll find out in the first couple of weeks, whether or not they fit that mold of character that, that, that makes a difference in the hospitality industry and, and has certainly made a difference in my businesses. So after, after paradise, you switch gears and end up at the foundation at the uh, Florida restaurant and lodging association I did. I did. and running that. So uh, that's a pretty big lifestyle change. It was huge. It so, was uh, huge. so what was that like? 
Well, uh, Carol Dover had approached me. I'd been on her board for a number of years. I'd been a chapter president for the Florida Restaurant Lodge Association. I just believed in their mission and their vision. And um, she she invited me to lunch one day and said, listen, I, you know, we, I like the way you operate. I like who you are. And um, I'd like you to consider finding a way to come work for me. And, and I said, well, what does that look like, Carol? I have no idea. And we'd been pretty successful at Paradise. And we had seven companies at the time that she had sat down with me. Uh, doing different things. And she goes, well, I'm really not sure I can afford you. I never hire anybody off my board and I don't have a job for you. And I said, well, I hope you're buying lunch, Carol. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she goes, no, but I want to figure something out. And as it turned out, uh, FRLA was acquiring regulatory compliance services out of Winter Park, an alcohol training division. And Chip Bone, who was head of the Florida Restaurants uh, Educational Foundation, which oversaw 246 high school culinary programs. He was kind of laterally moving over to RCS to head that up. And the position for um, head of the uh, educational foundation came up. And I said, wow, that would be cool to give back to high school students. Yeah, sounds great. You know, it was a good fit. And uh, it was a part of her senior staff. And um, I was like, well, you know, if I can convince Fincher to buy me out or, you know, uh, then we can make it happen. So your next venture is (laughs) – the the most out of the box. Yeah, it and was bizarre. goes back to your early IBM days in technology, right? <laughs> um, and that is the development of kind intelligence and the menuless menu management system. Yeah. So that is a innovative, brand new. So yeah. th- that's really a different path to take. So tell me how where that came from and how that got started. I got a phone call out, out of out of the blue from Jim Hunt. Um, who I knew from church, didn't know him really well, but uh, always admired him and his wife, Deb. And, you know, he says, this may sound really crazy, but I met this guy. He's uh, in Indiana. He's really bright. His name's Vincent Hunt. I'm like, is he your brother? He goes, no, 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 no. (laughs) We're not related at all. And uh, he goes, but he's got this idea in his head that is just, uh, I don't know, maybe you can make sense of it. And so I said, sure, I'll look at it. And sure enough, uh, Vincent Hunt uh, and I started to communicate over the phone and he started showing me some things after I signed an NDA. And, you know, I was like, it was pure genius. I mean, it was it was something so far out of the box for me technology wise. Uh, but but the introduction of applications through smartphones, um, I saw it. Which this is just the beginning of the smartphone yeah. era. I mean, this is really, yeah. 20, iPhones 2011. were, yeah, right. Brand new at this point. You know, what they needed me to do was to to validate its value within the hospitality industry. Right. And now that I had – You had the credibility. And, and I had the connections. Uh, FRLA had really grown my statewide influence and right. uh, connectivity to, to the industry, both from the food and beverage side to the hotel side. Um, and so, you know, when I started sharing the idea, people were really kind of, wow, if, if that could be done. Um, what was the idea? The idea was to take menus, put them on the web in a dynamic way, using pictures, using um, food characteristics, such as it could be Chinese or barbecue or whatever, in addition to taking the big eight allergies and using that in a format that allows people to create a profile so that they could actually find not just restaurants, that meet their dietary restrictions or desires, 
but they can find actual dishes and pictures of them with dialed in nutritional content. Um, and it, 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 it went from being kind of a menu management system, which it, which it was, but its ability to become a search engine was becoming kind of the direction we ended up heading in. And we, we ultimately raised three quarters of a million dollars. We built the platform. We needed a lot more. And most people don't know that these type of startups, you get to a point and then you need like $5 million, $10 million right. to get it launched. It's not an overnight kind of thing. Um, and, I, and, and more than anything, we, we hit a roadblock in funding. And I tried to work with some angel investors. I traveled the state and, and uh, to conferences for startups and through our pitch, kind of like in Shark Tank version, you know, right. before Shark Tank. And um, we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't get it to where it needed to go. And it was unfortunate. I still believe in the idea. Nobody's really done it um, to the Do you degree. think it was just ahead of its time? I do. I Technology-wise yeah. or people weren't used to using their phones that way at that point? Um, yeah, it was ahead of its time. And, you know, again, it, it's hard to get a lot of money to, to get to that next level. Now, I know that was a financial risk for you, but you knew that it was going to be risky. So were you prepared for that or was this a, a, a setback for you? Um, it was. I mean, uh, it, was, it was a big financial setback. And um, everybody involved – you know, need needed to do something to to support themselves and their families, and uh, I hung in as long as I could. I was kind of last man standing, uh, understandably. And um, you know, my my job was to to run the business, and to um, you know, I got to a point where where I had to consider something else. And um, so I, I kind of over the years and between the cracks and reading through the lines, I always did consulting. I I, I love the idea of consulting, and um, love teaching and building businesses, uh, whether it was licensing or yeah. whatever. And some of those opportunities came up and, you know, God is faithful and I'll just believe that he's going to take care of my family no matter what. And um, uh, Dr. Joe West at Dedman School of Hospitality, who was the department chair, had gotten involved with um, uh, a guy from Brooklyn originally, uh, Steve Fassberg, who who developed the Brooklyn Water Bagel right. concept and said that they were kind of struggling – corralling the model. And so it became a great opportunity for me because they were building one in Tallahassee in College right, Town. College Town. And they thought that having, you know, an anchor here, uh, as well as somebody who was willing to travel statewide and, and across the nation to help kind of look at these processes. And so I got involved with uh, with them for So for you're back years. in the game again. I'm back in the game. So, yeah. I, you know, um, uh, good story. Uh, we, we, I worked with them for two years. They, you know, they, they, they got bought out by a billionaire by the name of John Preston, who owned North American Development Group, and they offered me a severance package to to go away, and I said, "Sure, <laughs> absolutely." Yeah, if it's not gonna if it's not gonna fit, if it's not a good fit, if it's not gonna work, then it's good to end it quickly. Yeah, and we did, and um, you know, again, the timing was pretty good. I was already um, doing some work uh, at the DoubleTree uh, behind the scenes, and. Um, you know that opportunity opened up pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, well, I, tell me about that. So you move on to the double tree and take a property that's not sure. doing so well and needs some refreshing, updating, yeah. kind of some transformation, and and it's been pretty amazing what's what's happened there. Yeah. So so the ownership group that had remodeled the the hotel Duval uh, had bought the the double tree and uh, 
JT was one of the investors in Kind Intelligence and uh, talked to me about um, the food and beverage program at Doubletree. And in the past, it had always been treated kind of as an amenity and, and not necessarily as a business model because the rest uh, the hotels, you know, it was the largest full service hotel in Tallahassee with location A. Right. And so there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on banquets and, you know, they did them, um, but there wasn't anybody leading them. And so I spent really, you know, some time behind the scenes, four to six months, getting to know the team, um, doing some research. What could we do? And uh, in in December of 2015, um, came on as a partner, a food and beverage partner, um, and was tasked with uh, transforming the food and beverage side of it to match the transformation that was happening with the renovations they were doing uh, on the inside and with the rooms and all the banquet space and ultimately the development of the 17th floor, which is now built but not open. But uh, it, it, it was great. It was a, it was a great opportunity. Um, we, in February of this year, were given the number one food and beverage operation for all double trees with 225 rooms or more in all of the Americas. Wow. So, Congratulations. So, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it was surprising. It's more than just facilities and, right. you know, it, it's people. It so is. is the transformation of culture and yeah. team, was that really what made the difference? So that's, I think, where my strengths have, you know, landed um, is culture. And um, we needed to change the culture. And I, I now do some public speaking on a presentation I call Culture Shock. Um, leadership with purpose, but ultimately, you know, we needed major culture shock. There are people that have been there for a very long time. Um, when you're in an industry that has a lot of turnover like yeah. that, is that tough to build that kind of culture or, or people who buy in tend to have a tendency to stay around for a while? They do. They do. Um, I, I've been fortunate. I've got very loyal um, team members that would follow me, you know, to the ends of the earth, not because I'm some great guy, but because I've allowed them to do their jobs without micromanaging them um, and giving them, allowing them to provide input. Um, I don't have all the answers, Dave. I mean, let's be real. I'm not that smart. But ultimately, uh, Steve Jobs once said, uh, you know, I didn't hire great people so I could tell them what to do. I hired smart people so they could tell me what to do. And, and what I've learned right. is the, the better I am at surrounding myself with individuals that are better than I am, the more success I'll have. And so, you know, some you got to bring up and some, you know, but putting your arm around them and letting them do their thing is, is, is worked really well for me. And and they did it. They, they deserve all the credit for that. Uh, if I get any credit, it's for finding them to do it, you, you know? And again, going back to legacy, that's, that's to me, what's more important is building others up so that they can reach their potential. All right. So now let's talk about your current project, Ooh, Saver. Yeah. Um, you know, you've been in the business for over 30 years, yeah. but this seems different. What is, is it about Saver that is different than all the other projects you've worked on? You know, I get to work with my wife. And, uh, you know, after that first year in 91 uh, that I opened the Gables, uh, I teasingly say, but whether or not, you know, she'd work with me again after that experience because she'd come up on the weekends and she'd help host us and she was, you know, part of the Gables. She, she saw what was going on. And, and I remember it this way. I don't know that she does, but that, you know, she said, well, I don't think I'll ever work with you again uh, because I was still in that kind of control freak state in my life. And, uh, right. but, you know, fast forward 27 and a half years uh, of marriage. And, you know, when 
I knew that the Doubletree was sold and that my time there was limited. Um, and Avenue Eat and Drink had closed. And I knew a lot about that space. I had helped Chris Clark open it in terms of licensing. Yeah, I was right there. I knew why it closed. So I was confident in the business model. It was a good spot. She saw it and said, well, why don't you think about doing that? And uh, it's like, well, you know, I don't know that I want to go back into the nighttime restaurant business and it'll have a different effect on our family. Kids are older and, you know, different stages and phases in their yeah. life. They need dad in different ways. And sure. so she goes, well, I'd, I'd really like to to remodel it. And I'm like, I didn't know you had interior decorator aspirations, <laughs> but uh, okay. So I started talking uh, to the landlord, the, the owner. There were two or three other ob obvious operators looking to do it. And and I talked to uh, Mark uh, Reicheldurfer, who owns the property, and he kind of knew who I was and the experiences that I'd had. And and uh, he had to weigh and make a decision as to who was going to be you know his tenant. And uh, I, in many ways, was probably the least favorable and, and in the sense that I offered him a one-year lease. And he's like, one year. What are you talking about? You know, right. I want a five-year lease and I want X, Y, and Z. And I said, listen, this is Tallahassee. I've been here for 34 years. Independence struggle with success. And um, here's the deal. We'll put a bunch of money into the space. And being Scottish means I'm very thrifty. So I, I, I don't – I didn't realize that yeah. was a characteristic. Oh, it is. It is indeed. Thrifty we are. And um, <laughs> Except in kilts. Nothing yes, but the best. Oh, yes, that's true. The finest fabric. That's right. Yeah, you don't want anything itchy, I no. can assure you. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, I said, listen, I'll know in nine months if we have a success. And I will give you notice that I will renew for five years after nine months. And I said, in addition to that, it's going to take – us some money and time. There's some things you need to do to the building. I will prepay, you know, three, four months worth of rent so that you can fix what you need to fix with your building. And that's HVAC, electrical, plumbing, et cetera, that needed to be addressed. Right. So here, I'll give you a chunk of money up front. You fix what needs to be fixed with that money. And I'll take a nine month, uh, you know, one year lease. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough uh, that that Kim did a phenomenal job with the interior decorator with the help of her cousin um, and uh, her husband, who are interior decorators and contractors. And they came up from South Florida and helped transform it with the vision that Kim had had. Um, and we did it pretty quickly. And ultimately, uh, she kind of created a canvas that lent itself to a specific restaurant. Well, over the last 10 years, I've been making a list of if I ever had, you know, an upscale restaurant, these are the items I'd have on it. And um, Matt McCreelis from Southern Seafood introduced me to, to Brian Nepper, um, which which has turned out to be like an unbelievable. How key is having oh, him to it's, this project? It's, it's paramount. Um, and right. when I met him, I was like, look, here's what I'd like to do. Here's the space that we have. This is what Kim's doing with it. What do you see? And I gave him the list of items I wanted and he transformed them into things that I, I never could have imagined. Um, I did a little crowdsourcing on Facebook. What one item would you like to see? And people didn't even know what I was doing. Right. I made it seem like I was working for a client. And uh, Escar I think I suggested chicken fingers or something like that, <laughs> which I don't see on the menu. No, so. uh, we do make them for for those under 12. And uh, so they're available. Oh, um, good. It's off the menu. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and probably not our best work. I don't know. <laughs> but um, 
you know, escargot, uh, escargot was the number one thing that we crowdsourced off Facebook, which surprised me about Tallahassee. And I'm thinking, I love escargot. It was on my list of things, but I didn't want it in garlic butter on a toast point. I mean, that was not my idea. When I asked Brian about it, the first thing he said was escargot pot pie. And I was like, what is that? He goes, well, I'll make a little, you know, phyllo cup dough from scratch and we'll, oh, peas and carrots and this brandy sauce. I mean, it was – and Brian came in and we started playing in the kitchen and uh, the things he's produced have been award-winning in a very short period of time. And you've been overwhelmingly positively received by the very active Tallahassee foodie yeah. social media community. Yeah. Um, you know, how did – were you – concerned about that? Did you feel like that? I mean, that's a different era than 1991 where people can kill you or, you know, send lots of people to your door with a couple of posts. Social media is a scary thing for operators. Um, it'll make or break you for sure. I think Tallahassee Foodies and what Jennifer Leal has done is created an environment where there are a set of rules you know, and decorum when it comes to providing feedback. It's not that we're unwilling to take constructive criticism. It's how you go about giving it right. and the opportunity you give the operators to respond to it before going public with right. it and shaming them. Everybody knows that if I go to a restaurant and I have the best food I've ever had, but I have terrible service, rude server, whatever the case may be, I'm probably never going back. If I have over-the-top service – and I have mediocre food, but the service was just so good that I felt great about the experience. I'm going, I'm back. going back. Right. I'm giving the food a second chance. I'm not giving the service a second chance. And so we have to make every effort possible to get that first impression right and get the service where it needs to be. And that's why I said we, you know, the independents generally don't focus on that enough in training people about um, staff members, about wines about food allergens, about the flavor profiles, about what what has meat and what doesn't have meat. So, that, you know, there's just a lot of nuanced information you need to know. And they have to be willing to work for it. We've talked a lot about Kim, yeah. your wife. Yeah. Um, tell me about her. Oh, my word. Uh, probably the wisest person I know. Uh, filled with grace to have put up with me. <laughs> Um, biblically strong, just in the word and, and, uh, a true Proverbs 31 woman, uh, who supports me and everything. Um, you know, I've put her some, th through some things I shouldn't have. And, uh, you know, I think over the last 20 something years, I've been doing everything I can to make it up to her. Um, but she's incredible. She, she, we've home educated our children, um, pretty much from day one. So she's not only a, a spouse, a wife, a mother, she's an educator, um, and she has the ability to uh, discern things better than most. And um, I don't, you know, she's just everything. She's everything to me and to our children. And uh, the opportunity to to work with her. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask. This is, I mean, rather yeah. than taking you away, you're you're together a lot here, right? Yeah, and 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 that's something that we haven't experienced really before. Um, you know, we're together many nights. You know, that we're doing this, and it, and it is different uh, experience. You know, dynamic in the family now. Uh, you know, missing um, 
dinners together as a family. And of course, our oldest son is in the military and, and he's out of the home. Uh, our daughter is still in the home and attending college. And the, we have two boys that are 15 and 12 that are still at home. And what's what's been amazing is that uh, the three of our children at home are, have been involved in the restaurant as well. All right. Just kind of wrapping it up here. Um, do what, what do you want people to know most about you? That uh, I'm far from perfect. That um, I regret my past sins and I know that I continue to sin. But through faith, I've been forgiven and having that knowledge allows me to be a better man as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a son. For me, it's, it's a story of, um, you know, redemption and forgiveness and love and grace. And, you know, I've received so much of it in terms of forgiveness and grace and mercy that to give it back now is really, really easy. The name of this podcast is How I Got Here. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of how you got to this point in yeah. your life. Where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now? I hope that I have an opportunity to tell this story to a lot more people. This is a great first step. I did not expect this. But I've always been intrigued by you know public speaking. And I've started to kind of dip my big toe in the water, so to speak, uh, doing some events um, for others, um, talking about leadership with purpose, talking about culture shock, talking about my life experiences and how they can be applied to not just the hospitality industry or food and beverage or hotels, but um, to any organization. Really, right. it, it, well, the principles apply no matter what you're doing. They really do, and so for me, in three to five years, um, I would, I would think that uh, th- there may be some other food and beverage operations, um, but at the same time, um, I'm hoping that uh, you know may- maybe giving back in terms of some public speaking um, opportunities and uh, consulting. It, 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 at the heart consulting is one of the things that I've already taken on new clients locally, uh, looking at some out of town, but you know, that's probably where, what I'll continue to do is to consult, to share my life experiences so that others can benefit from it. Right. Not make the same mistakes I made. And I made a lot. (laughs) That was Drew McLeod. And he would tell you he still loves soccer, Jesus, and making people happy at his restaurant downtown. And I'm pretty sure that if you had another creative way to use Escargo, he'd be all ears. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.